0: We are going to talk about the living dead, in particular, dead churches that look alive. So let me ask you this. How would you spot a dead or dying church? You know, everywhere I travel, I kind of look at churches and I kind of try to figure that out. I mean, is it a church that has declining population? I mean, so tiny that it just kind of actually just dies out? Is that the dying church? Or is it a church that is so torn up by controversy that they truly stop being a living church? Or could it be a church that has gotten so comfortable with the people that are already there that they don't really have room for anybody new? You know, we all got our pew and God forbid anybody sit in it. Or is it a church that has lost all of its zeal for lost people? I mean, can that be called a living church of Jesus? Or is a dying church a church whose best days happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they're still kind of living off the reputation of past glories? Now, as I said, that whenever I travel or go anywhere, you know, if you do this, Nancy and I tend to notice churches when we drive. We've just noticed churches our whole life. But when I pass a church, I often look at it and I ask myself, I wonder whether this church is dead or alive. Now, it seems that this question is easier to ask than answer. I mean, after all, if uh, the church appears to be open for business, I mean, look, like there's cars in the parking lot or whatever. You kind of assume that something is happening there. They probably have a worship service. Maybe they've got two or three services. They might have Sunday school. They might have small groups. They might have a worship team and a choir. They might have a a youth ministry. They may have a program for children. They may even have a program called the Senior Saints for those of us who are chronologically advanced. But you have to ask yourself, is that church living or could it be dead? Now, again, I'd suggest to you that it's easier to ask than answer. But I guess what I have concluded is this, that only the Lord knows himself whether a church is truly dead or alive. A church may seem dead, but have all signs of life in it or Far more ominously, a church may be full of life, but actually be at the point of spiritual death. Well, such was the problem at our next church, the church at Sardis. If you look at the map, you can see where we've been thus far in our weeks. We started first week with Ephesus, beautiful city, up to Smyrna, up to Pergamon with that natural harbor. Last week, we were at the church of Thyatira. And this week we come to the church at Sardis. Now, some people, you know, I've been wearing a different tie every week and you say, well, you you couldn't find a Sardis tie. Uh, Well, I, I thought about it and I thought we need to learn to take the hard right against the easy wrongs. And that applies to us not only as individuals and as a church, but also as a country. We need to stand up for what we believe in and not just sort of fade into the rest of the population. When Jesus comes to this church at Sardis, he made a very quick and disquieting diagnosis. In verse 1, he said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. First church of the zombies, huh? I mean, this may be one of the most damning indictments our Lord could give to any local church. And it's a comment that only he could make. I mean, the church at Sardis appeared to be alive and well. It obviously had a good reputation within the community. It was evidently not on the brink of closing. And Christians in other towns obviously spoke well of them. You know, I thought about that. And I thought, well, who knows about this church? Maybe they actually hosted how to be a, a, a great commission congregation conference. I mean, maybe the pastor actually wrote books and traveled to other churches all the way through Asia Minor. Uh, maybe they even had the largest congregation of all seven churches. But it's, it's kind of interesting as you read the text about what Jesus does not mention about this church. It does not seem to be suffering persecution. That's not mentioned. It does not seem to be affected, infected by false doctrine. We find no mention in the text about those mysterious Nicolaitans that we've heard about in the past weeks. There's no hint of sexual immorality in this church, nor is this church warned about having lost its first love. In some ways, this church at Sardis is the most difficult to dissect because we don't really know what was wrong there. When Jesus talked to these other congregations, I mean, he spelled out the problem so there's no confusion. But here we're simply told they look good on the outside, but they were dying on the inside. And strange as it may seem, uh, there is something that can be much worse than false doctrine. There could be something much worse than sexual immorality or trouble in the church, and it's this, having a good reputation that is not deserved. You ever been in a church like that? You ever found one? Has a great reputation, but they don't really deserve it. Maybe a little history on the city of Sardis will help. I mean, many years before the book of, of Revelation was ever written, Sardis had been one of the most important cities in that whole area That's called Asia Minor, or what we call today Turkey. Uh, When Persia controlled that area, Sardis was actually the capital city of Asia Minor. But under the Romans, it kind of faded in its significance. So we have a city whose best days have come and gone. A city kind of living off of its past greatness. I mean, Sardis was already surpassed by other great cities like Ephesus and Pergamum. It was a town that was living in the past, and it was a town that was living on the past. And it kind of seems that this church here in Sardis had taken on the character of the city itself. One writer I found said, The church of Sardis is the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. That almost gives me the willies to hear that. Inoffensive Christianity. Evidently, the Jews didn't bother this church. Evidently, the Romans didn't bother this church because the church didn't bother them either. It was left alone because it lacked the conviction to stir the waters and make waves. And so although it looked pretty good on the outside, it was really a spiritual graveyard On the inside. Now, Jesus can make this diagnosis because he can read the hearts and the minds of the people who worship in there. Maybe this is why he is called the one who holds the seven spirits of God. It's kind of a reference to the Holy Spirit that God sees everything, God searches everything. It's kind of like, you know, we pictured the day that God would be doing a heart scan in here today. And he would see what is alive and what is dead. Or if God were to scan the churches in Bowie County and Miller County. By the way, I hunted this up. I'm not sure these numbers are accurate because there's a whole lot more churches than I thought. But what I just read this morning was that there are over 200 churches of one kind or another in Bowie and Miller County. 65% of both counties claim to be Christian I would suggest to you that a whole lot less than 65% of our two counties are in church on Sunday. Probably closer to 30. In fact, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we've lost 600,000 members in the last 20 years. I wonder if God did a heart scan, what he would find. If it went by, it saw this church, it goes, live, 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 beep, 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 beep. (laughs) Dead, live, live. Beep, beep. You know which one? Would, which one would they be? I wonder what it would show up for the church on 4600 Texas Boulevard. Oh, we'd be good, wouldn't we? We'd be okay. Nothing's hidden from it. But do you ever wonder how a church gets that way? I, I, I am. I, you know, you know, when the past becomes more important than the present. I think the church is in trouble. When keeping a good reputation in the community is more important than having a bold witness for Christ. Probably in trouble. When religious ritual becomes an end in itself. You know, the famous last words of the church, we've always done it that way before. When talking about Jesus is more important than knowing Him. Or when convenience trumps sacrifice. Or when appearance matters more than reality. Or when tradition stifles every attempt at innovation. Or where personal comfort outweighs risky faith. Or when church activity is a substitute for walking with God. Now, what strikes me is all the things I just listed, those are all matters of the heart. And and because of that, they're really kind of hard to spot. I mean, a church, and I've done church consultation work, too, for about 25 years, and a church that is dead often seems pretty alive, at least on the surface. I mean, can you imagine, have you ever gone to a church that advertised itself this way? Come worship with us. We ask nothing, demand nothing, dare nothing, and dream nothing. Maybe we should put that on our church sign. Would that be a great advertisement? We ask nothing, we demand nothing, we dare nothing. We dream nothing, and we should probably add, and guess what, we are nothing. So what can you do with a dead or dying church? But I want to take a little bit deeper, and you might ask yourself, what can you do with a dead or dying individual? Well, there's some good news in here. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. I don't know about you, but God has some of his people in some of the strangest places. Even in a church like Sardis, that was like a spiritual graveyard, there were a few live people yet who loved the Lord and served the Lord with a pure heart. kind of reminds me back in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Elijah? Elijah, after he had this battle with the prophets of Baal and Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, he kind of threw himself a personal pity party. And he said, I am the only faithful servant of God in all of Israel. Oh, poor me. And God called him to action by saying, look, buddy, there are still 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, friends, God is not limited by our small vision. That ought to give us some hope, even in the most difficult of church situations, And I think anybody who ever gets frustrated in their faith or gets frustrated in their church or whatever, you ought to remember something. Uh, Generally, we are not in a very good position to judge our own effectiveness. You see, when you think you've won, I would say, don't be so sure. But when you think you've failed, maybe you should let God give the final verdict. You know, you and I... Uh, are as likely as Elijah to wrongly estimate our own victories and our defeats. It's kind of better to let God judge. So what hope is there for this dead church? Or what hope is there for a dead person? Well, first of all, I don't hope you noticed this when Matt read before, the words he accented were what? Wake up! <laughs> That's the first thing. The church needs to wake up. That's what verse 2 says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I'm not, for I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, what I didn't tell you before about the city of Sardis is that Sardis was located on a plateau. It was up and it was a high plateau. Sardis felt that it was completely safe from any invasion. But twice in its history, Armies had scaled the heights during the night and had captured that city. So here Jesus' admonition to wake up and be alert, I think, had special meaning for this city. I mean, no doubt this church had become so spiritually lazy. It, it, it was, everything was going well, so why bother to post a, gate, a, a, a guard at the gates? I think about that every once in a while when I talk with Warden Kane at Louisiana State Prison. And we talk about guarding the gates of Angola. Now, we're not talking about guarding the gates of the prison to keep the guys in. We're talking about guarding the gates to keep the wolves out. Because there are a lot of people who would like to be in there and take advantage of people and teach all kinds of nonsense. You've got to be vigilant. I'd say woe to any church who does not listen to what Peter said. Remember, Peter talked about the enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for juicy Missouri Synod Lutherans to eat. Or Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians. I mean, anybody who's got a heart beating for Jesus, he'd love to eat them up. And even Peter found out that Satan often attacks not at your point of strength, at the point of your weakness, but rather he'll kind of attack at your point of your self-perceived strength. So, and it's the same for every sheep. It's the same for every flock of God's sheep. If the, if the devil cannot make a full-out frontal attack on the church with something, he'll send wolves in sheep's clothing or cause the sheep to begin biting on each other. Or simply, lull the sheep to sleep. And when they've all fallen asleep, he'll come in with full force and wipe them out. This is what we call the Sardis spirit. See, the Sardis spirit overtakes us whenever we begin to take God's wonderful gifts for granted. You know, when baptism becomes a little magic act, When baptism is something we do just to get grandma off our back. When communion is, oh, it's just another time in the service where we just kind of come up and get a religious snack and then go back and sit in our pew and watch people and see what they're wearing this week. Or when we take the word of God for granted and don't even look upon it as a double-edged sword anymore, but... Kind of an interesting book that may or may not apply to us depending upon how we feel that day. That's the Sardis spirit. The second thing you see is the church must return to Christ before it's too late. Verse 3, remember therefore what you received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know what time I'll come. Now, to repent, I've said this so many times before. Repent means to change your heart, change your mind and then change your direction. It is not saying, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry is not repentance. Repentance is a change of heart, it's a change of mind, it's a change of direction. In this case, it involves turning back to the Lord with a whole heart. And I've got to tell you, I don't think there's anything more difficult than to, for a, for a comfortable church to Repent. I mean, most don't change until there's a whole lot of pain involved. I mean, we don't pray sometimes until we are absolutely desperate. You know, we don't pray until we're at the end of our rope. And we don't, uh, we don't repent until it seems like there's no hope. Let me take you back to the Reformation. Remember Martin Luther? Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. The reason he did this was to spark a little bit of theological debate in that town. He did not have on his mind a theological revolution, which we call the Protestant Reformation. I don't know if you know what any of the 95 theses even say. Let me read to you just the first theses. Posted in 1517, it reads this way, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent... He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the first thesis. And we don't hear that preached much in a lot of churches today, but it needs to be spoken to every generation, every bit as much as in Luther's. You know, sometimes we wrongly think that repentance is something we do when we first come to know Jesus, and then we just don't have to worry about it. But I'm going to tell you something I know about myself. I am so messed up by sin that I need to repent every last single day. And I'd say that sometimes I think I need to repent of my repentance. If that makes sense. Because I sometimes think I I don't really believe I'm nearly as bad as I really am. I mean, it's like praying. Pray. Lord, I'm guilty. I'm even guiltier than I think I am. So, Lord, I come to you pleading for your mercy, which I need even more than I Think I need. I want you to think about a guilt scale for a moment. One to ten. One, hardly guilty at all. Ten, rampant sinner. Where are you on that scale? Now, I'm not going to ask you because some of you might not tell the truth. Some of you are so guilt-ridden to begin with, you know, well, I'm not even on the scale. Uh, <laughs> I saw a ten out there. But, you know, a lot of people tend to think they're about five or six. You know, they're not as bad as some people sitting around them or who live next door or who don't belong to our current denomination. But, they're, but, but they're, there's other people that are worse than them, too. I mean, rarely do we ever think that we're, we're probably a nine or ten that we're really guilty But the sobering fact is that even the things we brag about, even the good stuff that we do in our lives, you know, that's good, right, virtuous, in Isaiah it says it's nothing but filthy rags. Rags to clean up vomit is the literal translation. See, we never get better until we we repent. Uh, Churches never get better until they repent. And we can't repent for anybody else. It's, it's the man in the mirror who gets us in trouble. And There is a threat if we don't take this seriously. Jesus, it says, will come like a thief in the night. Wake up, is what he's saying. And the church at Sardis, even though it was probably prosperous, even though it was probably a popular church, was not ready for the Lord to come. The church, like the city in which it found itself, was lazy and comfortable and spiritually indifferent. In a way, it had become a reflection of the town it was in. It seemed alive, but it was dead. Jesus is coming, though. The question is, are we ready? Are you ready? what What if you actually hang in there? What do you get? I, there's some good stuff at the end. Let me go through this very quick. First, you're going to be dressed in the white robes of victory. Won't that be great? You know, I, I've said before, I, I hate to tell you this, but I've read the Bible all of the way all the way to the end. And I know you should never give away how the book ends, but we win. I, I don't mean to ruin it for you, but, you know, we win in the end. Verses 4 and 5. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes them will... Uh, will, like them, be dressed in white. I mean, what a great thing. Larry, I think about your mom. Dressed in white. An overcomer. By grace, grace was saved. And second, it says, they will have their names reserved in heaven. It's written in the book of life. And if you remember back a few weeks, we talked about that white stone with your name on it. A special name that God has given you that only God knows that when you get to heaven... God is going to call you by a special personal name. He says, I will never blot their name from the book of life. This is a statement of absolute assurance. Uh, The Greek form here is actually a double negative. If we were going to translate verse 5, very literally, it it would say, I will never, ever, under any circumstance, blot their name from the book of life. I will never, ever, never. That's pretty good. And, And they're going to be personally recognized by Jesus. I don't know that there's anything more fun sometimes than to be recognized. Hey, I know you. Happened to us this last week. Nancy and I were waiting for our kids at the Keter Center for lunch, up in up near in Hollister. And Nancy said to me, "Does that lady over at the table there look like Carla?" And I I said, "Yeah, I kind of think so." She said, "What well, do you think it is?" I said, "Well, let me go over and find out. I got halfway there. And it was like, oh my, what are you doing here? And then it was, we recognized each other. And that was so great. Just think. No greater reward than for you to show up at heaven's door and not hear, uh, and what was your name again? <laughs> but they have the door go, ah, Matthew Hackworth, so great to see you all. We've been waiting for you. <laughs> now, As we kind of come to the end of all this, where did this church go wrong? Where do we go wrong? This is the Church of the Living Dead. It was a bastion of dead orthodoxy. It was a beehive of religious mediocrity. Its spiritual condition was made worse by the fact that on the surface they seemed alive. You know, far worse than persecution from out from without I would say is rot with rot from within. And friends, this can happen to any of us. It can happen to the church at any time. And maybe that's why the message today really is wake up. Wake up. Shape up. Repent. Remember what I have done for you. See that Sardis spirit overtakes us any time we start taking God's gifts for granted. I mean, how quickly we can become the church of the living dead and not even know it. In fact, some people might even need to look in the mirror and ask themselves today, do I really know the Lord at all? And as I said before, it would be better, I think, sometimes to be an out-and-out pagan than to go through life as a cultural Christian, not really knowing the Lord. At least the pagan knows he's a pagan. But the cultural Christian thinks he's alive when he may be near death. Now, God loved that church at Sardis. I'm going to preach a message in a couple of weeks that's called God Loves the Church. God does love the church. He loved the church at Sardis, and guess what? God loves the church in Texarkana. God loves this place called First Lutheran Church. And God loves the people that are in this church. That's why we need to pray. Lord, start with me. Start with us. Lord, do your work in me. Do your work in us. Wake me up. Wake us up. Stir us up. Stir me up to to love you and to serve you so that the world will know that I belong to you. That we belong to you. So my prayer for us today, friends, is that God would wake us up and would deliver us from the church of the living dead, so that we would be the church of the living Christ. May God grant it for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and join together in our affirmation of faith. We speak together. My faith is in God, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, visible and invisible. My faith is in God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to be the Redeemer of this world, who left the wonder and glory of eternity to enter time and space, who proclaimed the kingdom in the word and deed, who called us all to follow him, who died...